fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is a dimension of imagination. It is an area in which inner conflict is released in a way measured by inches. It is a phenomenon that we call the cathartic yardstick. Wow. Welcome to the cathartic yardstick. What a great opening for our Twilight Zone episode. It sure was. Uh, well, you're listening to the Cathartic Yardstick. Uh, I'm Ray, and I'm Mark, and this is a special edition of <laughs> special live edition of the Cathartic Yardstick. It's always uh, live when we do it. It, it is. So, so, so to us, it's live. Uh, yes, at least. And hopefully, you, we seem alive to you when you're listening to this. <laughs> With any luck. <laughs> yeah. And what are we talking about tonight? On this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to sit down with our three favorite Twilight Zone episodes from the old Rod Serling series. So Ray will have three, and I will have three, and the listeners will have the benefit of six of what we think are the best Twilight Zones. And I think this should be fun. Yeah, for you kids listening at home, uh, the Twilight Zone has been attempted to be rebooted several times, but I don't think anything quite matches the the original show. So, uh, without further ado, here's our Twilight Zone episode. The time is the day after tomorrow. The place, a far corner of the internet. The cast of characters... Two men hosting a podcast and reflecting on pleasant memories of youth. Two men sharing the common urgency of all men lost. They're looking for home. It's been said that one can lose their way, groping amongst the shadows of the past. The living people we've lost in the crypts of time sleep so soundly side by side with the dead that the same darkness envelops them all. As we grow older, we no longer know whom to awaken, the living or the dead. Submitted for your approval, two men, Mark and Ray, age 60-ish, reminiscing on the broadcasts of summer's past, broadcasts transmitted from an area we call the Cathartic Yardstick. I'm overcome with the drama. Yeah, that that was great. (laughs) That was great. So we're going to start with talking about our number one favorite episode. Yes. I mean, we could, we could have done a countdown style, but why, why, why hold the best for last? Right. You know, and this was an exceedingly hard task to just come up with a couple as best episodes because it's a multi-dimensional kind of show, and, and they're not all exactly the same, and, and they're good for different reasons. But overall, it just was an, an amazing experience uh, for you know, early television. And uh, But these are ones, I think, that, that just stood out for us uh, as like the best episodes that we got something out of. And, and Ray and I were talking a little bit before the podcast, and what's uncanny 
is in a way we've kind of what we find cool about these episodes we both find cool and so some of the episodes we picked you know, were illustrating each other's point which is really interesting it kind of shows you how, how the episodes uh, strike the viewer i will go with my uh, my number one favorite twilight zone of all time it was an episode out of season three and it was called nothing in the dark it was written by uh, George Clayton Johnson, and it starred a very young uh, Robert Redford and an older actress named Gladys Cooper. And the plot summary was uh, Gladys Cooper, when she was young, she started noticing that um, th- there would be someone that she came to know as uh, Mr. Death. He never looked the same way twice, but she was a young girl on a bus, and she saw an old woman sitting in a, a seat. And um, this gentleman came in, started talking with her, and touched her on the arm, and then left. And the lady was was dead on the bus. And over and over again, she would encounter Mr. Death, making contact with somebody, and then they die. Uh, And so as she gets older, she gets more and more frightened of her visit from Mr. Death, until uh, she gets to the point where she's in a condemned building, and she just won't leave because she's afraid to go outside because she may encounter Mr. Death. And so with this episode, what's great about it is uh, uh, the, the themes are basically how the old has to make way for the new. And it's not a horrific thing. It's a very natural thing. But yet we always fear the unknown. So in this episode, it starts off where Gladys Cooper is locked up in her you know, condemned building, and uh, she won't go outside. And so she hears a scuffle and a gunshot, and she hears Robert Redford, who plays uh, an officer, a police officer, and he's been shot, and he's outside her door, and he's calling for help. And she's saying, no, no, I know, you must be Mr. Death, you know, and, and Robert Redford's saying, I just need help, I just need help. And so she finally brings him inside, uh, lays him down, you know, on a bed, and and kind of tends to him and gets to know him, gets comfortable with him. Uh, but she's telling him all about how she fears Mr. Death. And, you know, suddenly uh, a door gets kicked open. And when she comes to, and she's convinced the door was kicked open by Mr. Death, but it was a construction worker. And uh, the, the writing, one of the things I love about this episode is the universal theme of the fear of the unknown, the fear of death. But the uh, construction worker was at the door, and the the writing is just great. Um, But he wakes her up, and he's really relieved that she's okay. And he says, you know, I I ain't a monster, lady. I've got a heart just like everybody else. But I can see how you can get attached to a place and not want to see it wrecked. But when a building is old, it's dangerous. It's got to come down to make room for a new one. That's life, lady. Old, make room for the new. People get the idea that I'm some kind of destroyer. They think I get kicks out of tearing stuff down. That that ain't the way it is. I just clear the ground so that other people can build. In a way, I help them do it. Look around. It's just the way things are. A big tree falls and new ones grow right out of the same ground. Old animals die and young ones take their places. Even people step aside when it's time. And so he's talking about the building, but he's talking about the larger theme of the, the old uh, making way for the new. And uh, finally, he leaves, and um, Gladys Cooper looks at Robert Redford and says, he didn't even notice you there. 
And then she looks in a mirror and she sees the reflection of the bed and there's no one in it. And then she looks back at the bed and Robert Redford's right there. And so she goes through this whole thing about how you deceived me. I trusted you and you were Mr. Death the whole time. You could have taken me. And his theme is just that it's natural. There's nothing to be afraid of. And it's really beautiful writing. And so what we did is we have a, a sound clip of the, uh, the denouement, I guess, of the episode. And I think it's just great. So you want to play that? Sure. Here we go. You tricked me. It was you all the time. Yes. I tricked you. But why? The moment I let you inside, you could have taken me any time. But you were nice. You made me trust you. But I had to make you understand. Am I really so bad? Am I really so frightening? You've talked to me? You've confided in me? Have I tried to hurt you? It isn't me you're afraid of. You understand me. What you're afraid of is the unknown. Don't. Don't be afraid. But I am afraid. The running's over. It's time to rest. Give me your hand. But I don't want to die. Trust me. No. No. Mother. Give me your hand. shock no engulfment no tearing asunder what you feared would come like an explosion is like a whisper what you thought was the end the beginning when will it happen when will we go go look We have already begun. There was an old woman who lived in a room and like all of us was frightened of the dark but who discovered in a minute last fragment of her life that there was nothing in the dark that wasn't there when the lights were on. Object lesson for the more frightened amongst us, in or out, of the Twilight Zone. I think that's just awesome. <laughs> and, great. and I think what's so amazing about it, too, and I've always wondered about this, 
is um, he's telling Gladys Cooper, you know, give me your hand. Trust me. And she's going, no, no. And he says, mother. And so it makes you wonder, what's the backstory? I mean, is he just referring to an older woman as mother and her maternal instincts? Or did she lose a son in war or in birth or something like that? And she realizes, you know, I'll get to be, I'll be reunited. I mean, it's just, it's just a wonderful episode. And I think it just touches on that um, human commonality of fear of aging, fear of death. And so I thought that that's my number one favorite of all time. It's very much uh, Shakespearean. You have a kind of a, a common worker, this construction guy who's going to tear the building down. because gives this very eloquent speech about about change and, and getting you know making way for the new by uh, by moving you know moving over the old. And it just it's great. And and another thing that's very typical of a lot of the episodes is a plot twist because when when the construction worker comes in, the the, the manager you're pretty sure he's death and he's kind of set up to be that way but then all of a sudden you just turned around at the last minute to realize no that wasn't him awesome yes great great <laughs> episode so ray what is your favorite episode of all time my favorite episode is five characters in search of an exit which was in season three written by rod serling based on a short story uh, a number of the episodes in the the anthology were actually based on on, on other writings that were uh, uh, put into a, a teleplay, and uh, it starred William Wyndham and Marie Matheson. And basically, the story starts with a army major who's dropped into this pretty much featureless round room, and he really can't see what's going on and gradually he realizes that he's not the only person in the room and he starts exploring around and finds out he's there with a ballet dancer, a bagpiper, a clown, and a hobo. And all of them have been there for a while. They don't know how they're going to get out. They don't know where they are. They don't know what their names are and they're getting pretty desperate. And all they can see is just they're in a room that's kind of a round room with no corners and looking up, there's a light up above, but they don't know what any of this is or what it means. And every once in a while, they hear kind of a loud bell ringing that kind of shakes the whole place. And it's their desperate attempt to try to figure out who they are and what they're doing there. And, um, and, and isn't there somebody who cares about them? Why are they there? Someone must must care about them and be looking for them. And eventually they figure a way to climb out of this this uh, enclosure by standing on each other's shoulders and eventually they get up high enough that uh, the, the army major goes over the side and then all of a sudden it switches to a doll falling into a snow and a little girl picks it up and throws it back in the bin and it turns out that they're actually unwanted dolls in a, um, a Christmas collection which I mean it's your classic Twilight Zone uh, you know plot twist at the end but but what I liked about it, um, I mean, the acting in it is absolutely phenomenal. The dialogue's amazing. Uh, the series was in black and white, which really I think added a lot to it because pretty much the way every single shot is framed in the, especially in this episode, the lighting is perfect because there's there's no there's no uh, stage settings. It's just a blank room, so they're relying totally on uh, on character blocking, which is you know how they're set up in relation to each other and the lighting and it's it's amazing pretty much every frame is, it could be like a picture 
just some, some wonderful performances. And I think this episode, you know, kind of harkens back to uh, Serling's early work uh, on Playhouse 90, which where you're trying to, it's kind of that mingling of radio and theater and, uh, you know, television was still kind of new. They were experimenting. Uh, and it, it just it's just great. Uh, and one of the things about it is that there's, they didn't need a big budget. They didn't need a lot of sets. It's pretty much relying just on the actor's performance and, and lighting. And, and it's just brilliant. And, and I'll have an episode that, that hits on the same thing, but that's also the favorite, my favorite part about, um, about five characters in search of an, of an exit is... Um, is when they had a Twilight Zone episode that was set up as if it was a play, you know, a limited number of characters, one set basically. Mm-hmm. And um, even when you look on the internet and you try to pull up dialogue, you can see these scripts for a half an hour show. Once you take out commercials, it, it was called a teleplay, right? You would have mm-hmm. you know, a, a yeah. writer and then a, somebody doing the teleplay. And um, the script was maybe what, 16, 20 pages long. Uh, so you can imagine, you know, you take a, a master actress like, uh, you know, Gladys Cooper or a up-and-comer like uh, Robert Redford, and you say, okay, you guys got to collectively master 16 pages of dialogue. <laughs> okay, yeah. great. I, got, I can do that over lunch. But, yeah, I love, I love how the simplicity to telling, milking the most powerful story out of minimal exertion of money or sets I think is, is amazing. I sometimes think maybe Toy Story was in some part uh, based on this episode because one of the things the uh, the characters in the room are talking about is they don't know their names. Someone must know our names. Someone must care about us and give us a name. It's it's like unless you have a name, unless somebody cares about you, you're you're nobody. And you don't know who you are. And it's just a, just a great episode. Are you ready for episode two? Let's do episode two. Okay, my second favorite Twilight Zone episode came from season one and it was a, a, an episode called Walking Distance. Um, it was written by Rod Serling and it starred Gig Young and a, a character actor from the 50s and 60s named uh, Frank Overton. But what it does is it, um, it hits on, I think, the universal theme of being a little bit disillusioned in adulthood and wanting to somehow go back home to when things were simpler when you were a kid. And of course, if you have daddy issues, then you get to go back and visit with your dad. You know, But as an adult, I think it's a, a secret dream people have. And so that's what Walking Distance was about. Uh, Gig Young played an advertising exec who was just exhausted. And so what he wanted to do was he just went out in his car one day and he tried to drive back to his hometown and um, because he wanted to go back in time so badly, uh, that's what ended up happening. He reaches back to his hometown and um, he, he realizes that he's gone back in time. And so he's talking to little kid friends that he had. And so he's trying to find his little kid self only to say, don't waste a minute. Really enjoy this time you have because it's such a special window of time. Never forget it. But of course, he doesn't belong in that time and space. You know, everything he tries, he's just spooking the kids because he's like an adult stalker <laughs> who's got issues, you know. And and finally, on a merry-go-round, he's trying to find his younger self just to tell him, enjoy yourself. 
And the kid's like freaking, trying to run away, falls off the merry-go-round, breaks his leg. And so everything, everything just goes wrong. Um, but again, aside from the universal theme, uh, again, I think it's just beautifully written. And um, we have a, uh, um, a sound file from um, after the doctors come and take the kid away who broke his leg running away from Gig Young. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the dad comes back to the merry-go-round and Gig Young is just sitting there crushed, you know, with his, uh, with his head in his hands, you know, just thinking he's screwed everything up. He's a, he's unhappy in his current life and he goes back in time. He's just screwing things up. So it's a, it's the scene, the ultimate scene between he and his dad. And I think it's just really beautifully written. I thought you'd like to know the boy will be all right. Doctor says he'll limp some, but he'll be all right. God for that. You dropped this at the house. I looked inside it. It tells a great many things about you. Your driver's license, the cards, the money in it. It seems you are Martin Sloan. You're 36 years old and you have an apartment in New York City. It says your driver's license expires in 1960. That's 25 years from now. And the dates on the bills, those dates haven't happened yet either. And you... you know, Pop? Yes, I know. I know who you are. I know you've come from a long way from here. A long way and a long time. But I don't understand how or why. Do you? But you do know other things, don't you, Martin? Things that'll happen. Yes, I do. Martin. Yes, Pop. You have to leave here. There's no room. There's no place. Do you understand that? I see that now, but I don't understand. Why not? I guess because we only get one chance. Maybe there's only one summer to every customer. That little boy, the one I know, the one who belongs here, this is his summer, just as it was yours once. Don't make him share it. All right. Martin. Is it so bad where you're from? I thought so, Pop. I've been living in a dead run and I was tired. And one day I knew I had to come back here. I had to come back and get on a merry-go-round and eat cotton candy and listen to a band concert. I had to stop and breathe and close my eyes and smell and listen. I guess we all want that. Maybe when you go back, Martin, you'll find that there are merry-go-rounds and band concerts where you are. Maybe you haven't been looking in the right place. You've been looking behind you, Martin. Try looking ahead. Maybe. Goodbye, son. Goodbye, Pop. First, I think what's great is the whole idea of it's a universal theme. Everybody wants to go back. But at the end of the day, you don't fit there. And you ought to be thinking about the now instead of the then. Look ahead instead of behind. I love that. Um, but also, 
supposedly this is one of Rod Serling's most intensely personal stories uh, because apparently he reflected a lot about wanting to go back and, um, and talk to his dad. And so he, he finally wrote about it. And he's actually writing about um, a park that he's from Binghamton. Um, and he wrote a, uh, the story to basically be the, the park he grew up in, um, Binghamton in, in the neighborhood. And so the set they used was actually the set they built for the movie uh, Meet Me in St. Louis. Hmm. And they rented a merry-go-round. But the merry-go-round was supposed to be a copy of the one that was in Binghamton. And to this day... In that park in Binghamton, I think it's just called Recreation Park, but in the bandstand right in the center, uh, they have an, an inlay on the floor, but it's dedicated to uh, Rod Serling. And so that was really ground zero for him. And I just think it's, it's so cool. Um, another cool trivia piece about that episode was uh, Ron Howard, but it was, it was a year before the Andy Griffith show started. So uh, that's the other trivia. But I just think it's a fabulous episode. Yeah, it also featured uh, another thing that was in a lot of Twilight Zone episodes. It, it was the ambiguous ending. Like you're never quite sure that you could you could write it off as this was just an imagination, this was just a dream, uh, whatever. But then something happens where there's some sort of evidence that this was all real. And you know, when he's kind of chasing his younger self around the merry-go-round, uh, young Martin falls and hurts his leg and starts limping. At the end of the show, um, Old Martin is actually limping, which he wasn't at the beginning. Yep. Yep. So it was, it was very cool. And, and we will be talking about that same kind of twist in my third episode. But before we go to my third episode, we have to go to Ray's second episode. My second episode was Nick of Time, season two, uh, written by Richard Matheson, starring William Shatner. And Patricia Breslin. And uh, this one is uh, follows a young married couple who are taking a trip. I think they're going to New York City uh, from Ohio, maybe. And uh, recently married. He's waiting here on a, a, a job promotion. Uh, they are, Their car breaks down. And it's going to be maybe till you know, a couple hours to, to get a part because they, they the, the garage doesn't stock it. They got to send out of town to get one. So they end up going into a diner. And right away, you can see that William Shatner's character is very superstitious. He's got a couple little, little quirks and he's got a keychain with a four leaf clover on it and a rabbit's foot. And they sit down at a booth in this restaurant. They don't get the chicken fried steak. And the guy's really upset that they don't, don't get the chicken fried steak. But, but uh, in the napkin holder, built into it, is a little fortune teller. And it's kind of like the magic eight ball sort of thing where you, uh, you put a penny in, you press the lever, and it pops out a little printed uh, answer, uh, just a very vague kind of answer. And you ask it a question, put in a penny, press the lever, and you get the answer. And this is a real setup for, for William Shatner's character because he's very superstitious. And they start asking it questions and, you know... Um, is he going to get the promotion? And they call, and he finds out. Well, we got the promotion. It must. It must. This thing must be real. And they say, should we wait till four o'clock when the car is ready to leave? And they decide to. And it says, yes, you should wait. And they go out, and they almost get in an accident, and they end up keep going back to this thing. And he's just going through penny after penny, asking it questions. 
and uh, working himself up into a real frenzy and not being able to pull himself away from it and still not getting the chicken fried steak. So um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a big thing with the, the owner of this, this diner. You're um, having a special. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it gets to the point where he's, he's, he's getting frozen. He's getting fixed. He, he can't move. He's, he's just completely frozen there. Yeah, waiting for direction, can't figure out, I, I can't do this on my own, this thing is telling me things, I, I don't know what to do. And finally his wife says, look, even if this, is, this thing is 100% accurate and is telling the truth, we should not let this govern our lives. We should just go out and make our own path and, and not worry about it. And it could really go either way at this point. And they decide, yep, they're going to go. They go back, they get the car, the the, the guy from the garage comes in and says hey we got the part we found it in town your car's ready and one of the last scenes is them driving off but there's also a scene where as they're leaving another much older couple comes in and is asking are we ever going to get out of here so they managed to escape but not everyone has managed to escape the tyranny of this fortune telling machine and it's it's just great it's it's a great little episode i mean it's not particularly profound or anything but it's got William Shatner, and uh, you know he he can chew up the scenery like nobody else, and and it's it's just great. It's it's before Star Trek, and he actually was in two episodes. He was also in the the one on the airplane, which is a, a classic episode. And, it was a terror uh, at twenty thousand feet or something. Yeah, like that. I think that's it. Yeah, that was a yeah. cla- a great episode. And this was just you know just a typical kind of light little episode, but it has a, a, a good message, and uh, I I think it was pretty well done. I think, again, it hits on the universal theme of how everybody would love to have certainty in their lives, mm-hmm. but we, de- we deal with uncertainty and we get scored on our adaptability and opening ourselves up to the unknown and taking risks. So what happens if you're so risk adverse, you want certainty, you can't move, you know? And yeah. So, it's, so it's, it's a great character study that way too, but a very, very good episode and, uh, Oh wait! You can I just, just add, and yeah. No, you can't. Thing. You can't. What do you think? This oh, is your show. I thought you were going to move to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and one other thing I liked, uh, and, and they do this, and in, in, I don't haven't watched enough of them over again. If, if they do it all the time, but you know, the, the typically how they do the show is there's the you know the, the voiceover with uh, you know the, the typical opening, and then the uh, the action will start, and then it'll go to kind of the the introduction to the the characters and a lot of times it goes from the actual scene that you've just seen and the the camera does what they call a whip pan where it just whips around and there's rod serling like on the set like you know he's like on this one he's sitting at a diner with one in the diner in one of the booths uh with the fortune telling machine and it's just so cool the way they did that yeah great 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 show i absolutely Mm. love it and it was William Shatner. And there was there was a surprising lack of William Shatner overacting in that one, wasn't there? Uh, for him, he was pretty restrained. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, but you no, know, it was it was a, it was a good episode. I like it. So, we ready for number three? Number three. My third favorite, and it's for it's for different reasons, but it's an episode out of season five called. The Seventh is Made Up of Phantoms, and this one was written by Rod Serling, and it starred Warren Oates. Um, but the plot summary was, there's a National Guard 
armor unit, um, armored cavalry, and they're doing a, um, there's a tank crew who's out doing maneuvers, but it so happens they're doing maneuvers right by Little Bighorn. And so the tank crew is out there, but they start hearing things. They start hearing horses um, and hearing like, you know, Indian yelling, you know, and stuff like that, but they can't see anything. And then they start seeing things like teepees, uh, but empty, empty teepees, you know, but they hear all this activity. And so finally they realize that there's some portal that parallels where they are and the actual events of during the battle of Little Bighorn. And finally at the end, uh, they don't show the audience this, but apparently they actually see the battle uh, unfolding. And so they leave the tank behind and they basically decide, well, we're in the United States Army, so we're going to be on Custer's side. And we've got automatic weapons, so we got, we're going to be a great equalizer. And so they just descend into the battle. And so what happens is they, they flash back to today, and um, the captain who's in charge of the unit uh, shows up with the MPs. They find the tank, and they can't find the crew anywhere. And um, somebody walks over to the uh, little bighorn monument that shows all the battle dead. And they realize that the tank crew's names are on that plaque, on that statue. And so, um, and so that's another little twist that confirms it wasn't just, you know, uh, imagination. It was something that actually, actually happened. And so the, the captain um, just basically makes, makes a comment once he realizes what happened. He just said, uh, it's too bad they couldn't take the tank with them. <laughs> Right. And um, and then one of the one of the privates asked, well, "What's that you said, sir?" And he goes, "Nothing. I, I've said nothing." But so what? What I liked about that one was the same thing that caught you about five characters in search of an exit, is you've got like a f- three or four person tank crew, and um, it's like a teleplay because you've got those characters, and are you going to have the money to have all the extras to have a couple of hundred people dressed up as? Custer's Seventh Cavalry, or have a bunch of uh, you know Indians, Indian warriors. So what you do is you avoid the cost by having them be invisible, and that actually adds more power and suspense to the story and saves you budget. And so I think I think it was just brilliant, a brilliant use of resources on hand to maximize the spookiness of the story. And so yeah, well, that's why that's my like- third favorite. Yeah, it's like that synthesis of of stage and, and radio. So just like just sound effects, and that's really all you needed in that. And yep. a lot of it was just just the dialogue between the tank crew uh, that pretty much made up the episode. But uh, it was uh, it was it was good. It was a good episode, and uh, just a very creative use of uh, of minimal resources there. Um, and that's one thing I noticed. I'm thinking back of when I had my big realization about this episode is when I was in law school, and uh, my friend and I would sit down and watch Twilight Zone together. And it's just as I'm watching it, I'm kind of realizing, yeah, it's kind of cool how they use the invisibility as a tool. And it's also dawning on me that they're probably also using it for budget reasons. That's just brilliant. And so mm-hmm. ever since then, I basically said, that's a brilliant episode. Very creative. So, All right. Ray's episode three, 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 three. three. All right. My, my uh, third favorite here is To Serve Man, season three. Now, this is 
This is a classic. This is part of pop culture. Uh, it was written by Rod's, uh, Rod, Rod Serling and based on a short story. Stars uh, Lloyd Bochner, Susan Cummings, and Richard Keel, who you might know from James Bond. Yeah, Jaws. Yeah. And uh, the plot of this one is... Well, it's pretty much it's pretty much a satire of of B uh, science fiction movies. Aliens come to Earth. They promise all these great advancements. They're gonna help us out of all the problems. There's gonna be no more war, no more hunger, no more poverty. Uh, they don't want anything in return. They just want to help us because because they're good guys. And uh, in in the process of meeting with people at the UN, one of the uh, aliens they're called uh, Canimates leaves behind a book and uh, there's a unit in the uh, in the government that's trying to translate this book and they're working on it they're working on it they're not, not making much progress but the only thing they managed to, to decipher is the title which is to serve man so it, time goes on and, and it, things are going well and more and more of the aliens are coming to earth and setting up uh, basically like embassies and they're bringing an exchange program they're bringing a lot of people from Earth up to their planet. And things are going well, and the unit that was working on translating this book is kind of just put it aside and saying, what's the point? Uh, everyone's kind of gotten very complacent. Uh, you know, everything's being taken care of. There's no more problems in the world. So the scientist, the lead scientist that was in charge of this project is going to go to the, the, the planet of the aliens. And he's, he's in line. He's going on the getting on the spaceship and as he's about to get on the spaceship uh, one of the it's funny because um he keeps talking about all the men he needs to translate this but it turns out it's a woman who ends up translating in the end which i, I thought was pretty cool and, and against type he's going to get on and she says wait don't get on that that ship i translated the rest of it it's a cookbook and that's just that's <laughs> and then uh, uh, the scene goes dark, and then it comes up with him being on the ship, and uh, they're trying to get him to eat because they don't want him to lose any weight. So basically, it's a cookbook for cooking men, not serving them. Well, to serve cooked men. <laughs> yes, to serve men. So I mean, and that 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 phrase is is uh, kind of part of uh, the pop culture, and it's been uh, it's been referenced in. The Simpsons and uh, Futurama, and I'm sure lots of other places. I was just going to say trivia I've heard about this episode mm -hmm. is that the the bottom part of the Canimates ship was actually the set they used for the uh, United Planets Cruiser C-57D from uh, Forbidden Planet. Oh. And also, I didn't go back and confirm this, but supposedly... As the ship is uh, approaching New York City, it's actually stock footage from the day the Earth stood still. It's supposed to be New York City, but you can actually see landmarks from Washington, D.C. But it's, so it, they're really trying to make it play like the 50s sci-fi movies. Right. And, and that's that. And I think that's why I liked it so much. It, you, it's very clearly a, 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 you know, a comedy episode. It's supposed to be funny, you know, darkly funny at the end. But, and, and the whole thing is very hokey. So as we back away from our six episodes, um, I think one thing that was interesting is that four of the six episodes that we picked independently, four of the six were written by Rod Serling, and the remaining two were both written by uh, Richard Matheson. 
Mm-hmm. So if you had if you had Rod Serling and a variety of writers writing, it's interesting that the two of us honed in on mostly Serling, but then Matheson as as our second. So that's interesting tidbit. But these are good episodes. They were great episodes, and uh, I had heard that Rod Serling was always a little disappointed that he never made it on the big screen. He's always trying to break into Hollywood, uh, you know, uh, feature films. But I don't. I don't think it, it takes away anything from him that that he didn't. I think he was absolutely brilliant in the medium he he worked with, and it was much closer to, say, a stage performance than it was, you know, big Hollywood movies where you're so distracted by props and sets and and uh, and scenery. And this is just like really getting down to the basics of what drama is, and he did it so well. He did. Absolute master. Brilliant guy. And so... With that, we, uh, we bid you adieu. Two men, age 60-ish, hosting a podcast. Successful in most things, but not in the one effort that all men try at some time in their lives. Trying to go home again. And also, like all men, perhaps there'll be an occasion, maybe a summer night sometime, when they'll look up from what they're doing and listen to the distant music and dialogue from a broadcast from long ago and hear the voices and laughter of the people and places of their past. And perhaps across their mind there'll flit a little errant wish that a man might not have to become old, never outgrow the parks and merry-go-rounds and television programs of his youth. And they'll smile because they'll know it's just an errant wish some wisp of memory, not too important really, some laughing ghosts that cross a man's mind that are just a small part of the cathartic yardstick.